Welcome to Word Quota with Beck McNew, where I talk honestly about life in my words and speak life through the word. Today on Word Quota, you're in for a treat because I'm finally interviewing my husband, Brett McNew. Hey, Brettie. Hi. How are y'all? Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brett. Not only is Brett married to yours truly, but he's the father of a, well, by the time this airs, she'll be a 13-year-old daughter. This She's not true. 13 yet. That's crazy. Who looks just like him, minus the beard situation, as well as an eight-year-old son who makes the best soccer buddy, which is great since you are his what? I'm his coach. Or a very good coach, by the way. Oh, thank you. Brett's a student pastor by both ministry and vocation. He loves stories and writing them. Being an Enneagram 9, he is the tranquility to my turbulence. Thank you, by the way. You know, honest husband and wife moment, sometimes your nineness frustrates me, <laughs> but overall... I'm really, really grateful that you are not me because I would really frustrate me more than <laughs> you frustrate me. Your graciousness was God's gift to me. Aww. So thank you for your nineness. Well, I'm happy in my nineness because that's what a nine would say, I think. I'm very, con I think so. very content and peaceful to be a nine. But I love you, babe. I'm glad we compliment each other so well because if if we didn't have uh, your go-gettedness, uh, we'd probably be homeless. So. I'd, I'm glad that we're not. I'd forget to pay the bills, um, probably. Wouldn't have that go. Yeah, this is true. Yeah, to clarify, it's not because you wouldn't go to work. No, no. It's because you just wouldn't have a list, and then <laughs> things wouldn't get accomplished. I have a list. I just not am not great at using the list for everything. It's on my phone. Having the list is a big step. It though, is a big step. Because you used to be really angry about the notion of having a list. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> It's it's still annoying. I don't trust it, but it's uh, it's okay. I'm trying. I'm trying to learn. It's questionable. You don't trust it? No, it's it's sketchy. It's like your sketchy friend that you're not you, you know he means well, but you're not sure he's going to follow through on like goodness in your life and so you just side-eye him a lot. Wait, so you're not sure that it will follow through, so you're not going to do something to make sure you follow no, through. No, it's 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 a he's questionable moral fiber is what I'm saying about the uh, Okay, so you think it, the list is self-serving and you don't trust yes, his motives yes, to serve I don't, you. Yes, correct. I don't I don't trust it. I don't okay. trust him. He's, he's sketchy. Did I tell you what Juliana said the other day? What's that? I was talking to her about her science project cuz like when I was not sleeping as is common, things were coming to my mind. And so I said, oh, I want to talk to you about your science project. And I pulled out my phone and I start, you know, making suggestions like how she could measure or what she's going to measure in that. And she goes, you made a list. And I was like, yes. She goes, I can see why dad said you should be a Ravenclaw. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Because I've tested Slytherin, but you're like, no, you're you're a Ravenclaw. Yeah, I, that's what I think. And I, I am a full-on Hufflepuff, so... Uh... You are. I are, are. Here's the question. I'm getting so off topic because our topics today are not Harry Potter or Enneagrams. It kind of is. Do you think all Hufflepuffs are nines? No, not all Hufflepuffs are nines. But I would say the vast majority of nines are Hufflepuffs. Okay. Kind of like not all squares are rectangles, but wait, no, reverse that. <laughs> not all rectangles are squares, but all squares are rectangles. Yes. That that kind of thing. Yeah. I, okay. I, would, I, I would say uh, that the... Hufflepuff and the Nine, are. there's a wide convergence there. That Venn diagram's overlapping quite a bit, but not completely. If we if we turned Enneagrams into 
Harry Potter houses. Which I'm totally down for. Would I be Slytherin wing Ravenclaw or Ravenclaw wing Slytherin? Uh, I would think you would be Ravenclaw wing Slytherin. Okay, and for reference, what Enneagram number do you think that I am? Uh, shucks. Uh, a five? Okay. I think I think that's what we've landed on. For a while, I thought four purely because of the inconclusiveness and fours don't like to be understood. Mm. And originally, I thought one because I'm really big on the right thing. Yeah, I could see that too. And, and they're big list makers themselves. But I think you're right. I think more so I would be a five because of the whole deep thinking, analyzing situation. Like if there was a magical test that just for sure, for sure could tell you and you came out of one, I wouldn't be like... <gasps> She's a one. I never would have thought it. It would have been, you know, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So we're going to get back to what we actually came on here to talk about, although I'm really enjoying this conversation. Does this count? We needed a date. <laughs> Does this count sure. as our date? This counts as a date, right? Ish. And I'm, it, I don't I mean, see I'm you. It. Uh, I, I hear you. Yeah, this is true because so even though we live in the same house and we're both in town, we're actually doing this um, over the internet because my pod closet that I record in can only fit one person. It's true. It's very small. In all honesty, I'm a little nervous about us talking into the same microphone because then I can't edit our separate tracks. So right now, if I talk over you, which I do a lot, <laughs> I can edit that out separately. But if we were together, then I couldn't edit that oh, out. Well, I don't, I don't mind. So he actually left the house to record this with it's me. It's true, I did. I'm in my overly heated office for some odd reason. It's an inferno. If it makes you feel better, um, the pod closet is not cold either because <laughs> there is no air circulation in here <laughs> well it is it is a two by two room so it kind of goes up to the attic so there, there is some breath i'm not suffocating but there's no temperature balancing circulation mm-hmm. anyway is there anything else that you would like the podcast listeners to know about yourself and that we haven't tackled in these few minutes before we get into the actual interview oh uh, well you know uh they're probably figured out by now i read a lot of books oh. Fantasy literature and science fiction and that type of stuff is my, uh, I have been a student pastor for 20 years now, and I uh, coach soccer. I, I love doing that. I love soccer. Coach Kanan's team, and I've been doing that for quite a few years. I coached Juliana before that, but I never really played soccer. Uh, so just figuring it out as I go. But yeah, no, that's about it. Thank you for sharing. Did you say Muppet? I didn't say Muppets. I mean, I enjoy most things Muppets. And I wanted to work for Jim Henson when I was a kid. So if you now, want to know Now that. you know. If there's ever a random quiz about Brett, you have that information. Okay. It's, We're going to talk important. about your young adult fiction novel, The Lying Tree, in a little while. But okay. you know me well enough by now to know that I'm very linear. In fact, we discussed this tendency a little bit in in the Enneagram conversation, which I didn't even mean to do. We're going to go way back to your childhood. So what are your first memories of enjoying fiction? And how exactly did that affinity develop? Have you always been a reader? Hank the Cowdog was one of the first things I remember reading in maybe second grade, something like that. I remember going, this dog is brave. And I don't remember what he did. I just remembered I was very impressed by the dog in the story. And then that was like it. Like, I don't remember reading much until about fourth grade. We were taking a trip to Tennessee from Michigan, where we lived, and had my G.I. Joes and stuff, you know, like you play with. I needed something to amuse myself, and we were at the mall. Remember malls? We Those went to fun. a mall the other day, and I was like, whoa, this we is did like go a to mall the other day. The past. Indoors. Yeah. And do you remember a Walden Books inside of malls? I do. I do remember that. Well, I went to a Walden Books in Monroe, Michigan, and on the uh, 
shelves that they had out front, and I do judge books by its covers. Undisplayed was a green book called Riverwind the Plainsman, and it had this barbarian dude and a dwarf and a lizard reptile person with a big old sword. And I was like, that's high quality fiction right there. I want to get this book. And so I bought it with my own money. I think it was $5.95 and read it on the way to Tennessee. And so that purchase changed my life and perspective. Not so much in terms of like Jesus changed my life as he did later on, but in terms of the things that I valued, that really not good book. <laughs> I've went back and read it again. It's very disappointing. Uh, just hold those past memories and, and treasured and don't go back and read <laughs> books you loved as a kid. And it directed me towards fiction. And I read, because of that one book, somewhere around 20 different Dragonlance novels after that. And it just kind of compounded onwards. Congratulations to the author of Dragonlance novels for changing the trajectory of your entertainment preferences. It, uh, Yeah, it, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And like I said, the things you remember as a kid being a really good book, just let it stay pristine <laughs> in your memory. So don't always go back, unless it's a classic, right? Because we, we can go back and revisit yeah. like C.S. Lewis and things. Sure, those those remain great. Riverwind the Plainsman <laughs> does not. Sorry if the author is listening. You still loved it. But for a fourth grader, man, it was good. When I first met you, which for our listeners who may not know this, or may if you listened to the conversation I had with Wes, because we talked about it then a little bit, I was 15 mm -hmm. and you were 18, mm -hmm. but I didn't know that you liked writing. Like it was actually a long time before I realized that you liked writing. It might, yeah. possibly years. I'm, I'm not sure. Like I knew you liked comics and I knew you liked to read and I knew... Mm -hmm loosely that you had written a story based off of your friend group at one point in your past. That's true. But in my mind, that was like a once upon a time thing. And I didn't realize it was such yeah. an important part of who you were. So we talked about how you liked reading, but we didn't really talk about when you decided to like writing. So if you want to weave that in there. Oh, okay. Connect the dots. I don't remember when I started writing and it wasn't when I was a kid, actually. It was probably high school. I was still reading over Christmas. I got a Robert Jordan book, The Wheel of Time, and it's probably 700 pages. And I read it in three days over Christmas break, like the whole thing. I didn't do much else. Uh, but sometime in high school, I think we had a, like you get a short story prompt by your teacher. Say, hey, you guys, we're all going to do short stories today. And we got put into groups and I wrote the whole thing for the group. And they just sat there and let Why me. Why not? And I still remember it was about a bear. It was a talking bear mama and its cub. And I don't remember what happened. People were like, that's actually really good. And I was like, man, whatever. It's a talking bear. Then after that, we had another lesson or another. And that was probably the only thing I wrote. Sophomore year, I, I remember this. Write a story, a three, four page story. And I wrote a 35 page story. I might have asked her and said, can I? I think at one point I was like, I'm up to like 20 pages. I should probably <laughs> tell her. And I okay. think she said, just go with it. I won a weekend trip to the National Storytelling Convention in uh, Jonesboro, Tennessee. And I was there for a weekend and got to hear people tell stories. Some of them read, some of them told their family stories. There was a couple uh, Native Americans who told you know, traditional stories. And it was really cool. And so that experience kind of prompted me to write more. And that teacher, whose name I can't remember right now, wanted me to write more and send it into contests. And this is where my nine comes in. Quality that I have of, I don't like to cause a scene. That's definitely in the nine, for sure. Getting embarrassed or putting myself out there or failing in front of people was not something I was very excited about. Nines don't like any confrontation really 
in general. It's yeah. to, not that I'm an expert, but to my understanding. There is another story I could I, I can tell, and I'll weave this one in here because it gives you an example. And I think I've told you this one, babe. I was a teenager and we were, my, I was supposed to be with my brother, uh, and I, I think he ditched me or I ditched him. Not sure. And I went, found a bookstore in Door County, Wisconsin. I was looking for a particular book, and this is amazing. I asked the person behind the counter because I couldn't find it if they had it, and they said no. But the author owns this bookstore. We could get we could get you an autographed copy if you want. And I ran out the store. I said no, that's okay, and I left because I was so embarrassed and like I was like this is too good to be true. Run away, and I just I just left. And I'm sure that person thought I was crazy. And now looking back, I realized I was. Uh, and so the same reason why I didn't turn any stories into contests for high school literature, because the idea of putting myself on display was terrifying. And so I ended up writing a over 100 page story about my friend group. It's really bad. And if any of them have a copy, please, for the love <laughs> of everything, don't let anybody read it. But yeah, it was over 100 pages and I had a sequel and I was I was working with and of course, back then I thought it was great. Then I think at some point along the way, I uh, I was about to graduate, and I guess I thought because I wasn't good enough to do anything with it, it wasn't worth doing, and so I quit. I finished that story and just kind of gave up on it. Uh, I quit writing based on the idea that I'm probably just wasting my time. That sounds like something that I would also do, even though I'm not a nine. Mm, letting somebody read something I wrote is often terrifying. Oh, yeah. It, it's very vulnerable and exposing. You feel naked. You, you do. And then you also feel like, oh, they probably didn't want to read it. They were obligated. They felt obligated. And, you know, all the things that you tell yourself. And so so it just kind of faded away. Um, and actually, I still like comic books, but I stopped, like, getting comic books because I guess I was trying to be a big boy. You know, grown-ups don't read comics. Grown-ups don't read, you know, Harry Potter. Grown-ups don't, you know, spend time. I got to got to go to Home Depot and work and, you know, graduate college and do those things. That seemed more important in some ways. So on that note, why do you think then that it's important to participate? Because, I mean, we know that you've gotten past that clearly since you've self-published a book. Maybe not past the being Mm -hmm. terrified about it, but past the not doing it. Why do you think that it's important to participate in creativity that's not measurable? When it comes to the creativity, I mean, if you look at the history of the church, the church has been, from its inception, really the the center of the nucleus of art in the world. All the great paintings and all the great architecture and all the things, when we look back in history, you know, the church paid for those things to get these things made. And you're like, well, why why would they do that? Because that doesn't seem to have anything to do with telling people about Christ and what Christ has done. But at the same time, God is a creative God and made this world as a good gift. Now, it is a fallen world, but you can still see the shadows of things that are to come. And so, like, as we were driving the other day and saw the trees and the colors of the trees, it's simply beautiful. Uh, you see sunsets, and you that's why everyone stops and pulls out their camera, because it's so amazing. And it's not that nature in and of itself is amazing, it's the God behind it. I think God is a God of stories. God is a God of creativity. And so, He has made us creative people, and I think... Every person creates in some way, shape, or form. They just may not realize what they create. And it may be, I like to tell stories. I like to create worlds and and tell these stories. I love to hear people tell stories. People create in terms of 
painting. I've got a painting right here in my office by our friend Alyssa Johnson, and it's absolutely wonderful. Our friend Dylan does woodworking, but it's even more that people create environments by, by their gift of hospitality. People create structures and buildings, and I don't think there's a single person who doesn't create anything. They may not realize they do it, but they do. And so I think when we do that, we are using, one, the gifts that God has given us, but two, we are well, in the act of creating something too. And as we do that, I think we can glorify God through these gifts that he's given us. And to not use them, to not build, if you are a talented writer, to not write, I think is, is a waste of who God made you to be. If you're, you know, if you're talented at hosting, that's something that people, that creativity that you put into that, it's not a small thing. It, it don't have that gift. It creates something and it creates a draw to draw people in and upwards, I think. To ignore creativity and to ignore art in the world. God created beauty. And so for us to be so structurally minded that we don't stop to enjoy the yeah. beauty, I think is, is wrong. It's like refusing a gift that he gave to us. Yeah. Just sometimes for enjoyment and sometimes for other purposes. And the reason why I ask this is because, of course, you're married to me, so you know. I lean toward type A tendencies and I like to compartmentalize and be able to measure success based upon the results or reach of what was produced. And especially in Western you know, America at present, that's a lot of how the world works. We know it works in marketing and efficiency and the like, but craft is not mm. measurable. No. Sales and popularity may be measurable, but numbers don't necessarily accurately indicate value yes. or the worth and the impact. And I love how you tied it into story, which is kind of your niche, but we don't know the whole value. We don't understand it until we've gotten to the end of the story. Yeah. And so to get like to chapter two and say, yeah, that's not taking me anywhere. I'm just going to stop. That's paralyzing the effect mm. of the whole scope of the thing. Yeah. A uh, story has, for, for me not to finish a story, it has to be very bad, <laughs> like very bad or not what I signed up for. If I thought a book was about something and the author made promises about what that book is about, and then as I get into it, I'm like, ah, you said it's about this, but it's really not. And that's not what I signed up for. I might check out, but it's very rare that I do that. Um, because I want to see, one, I want to finish the story, but also I want to trust the creator there that yeah. there was something of value in here that made you want to write this story. There was something in you that said, all right, this needs to be told. All right, well, what is that thing? I want to try to find it. And in our own lives, we are not the author of our story. We, we mm. like to think we're the author of our story, but we're not. We're also not puppets. We have a free will, but we're, we're not the authors and the yeah. initiators. Uh, we are the created things. And so to look up at the author and say, this is not worth it because it's not producing X, Y, or Z right now. I'm going to step off this page. Doesn't make sense. Yeah. It, we, we can't, the scope of it. Art and creativity isn't measurable. How beautiful is a sunset? Is there a scale? <laughs> Looking at a sunset, is it, you know, what did that add to your life? Well, it didn't give you more riches. It didn't make anything more valuable. It is impossible to quantify what you have been given in something that is beautiful. So art in and of itself, unless you were a collector and try to sell, you can't measure it. But it's something internal that turns our affections, hopefully, towards Christ and towards God when you, when you see it. And so it's not that I've got more change in my pocket because I looked at 
the beauty of, of nature or read this book, but it has stirred up affections in me towards a creator God is how I see why it's valuable to stop. Maybe you're busy, but you still stop to look because it turns your gaze elsewhere. And also, like, if you think about the sunset, the sunset isn't the only point of the sunset either. The sun has been placed there to warm the earth and sustain life. Mm -hmm. But usually I don't look at the sun and say, that is so amazing that it's sustaining life so well today. <laughs> like I, I look at the sunset, the sunrise and say, wow, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we're engaged in our creativities, what's put on display, there's still even more worth that is happening behind the yeah. scenes Besides just the wow factor of it, yeah. I guess. Yeah, that's good. So a few years ago, when we were in a different homeschool co-op, because you love me and one of us has to teach a class, uh -huh. you taught a class for me so I wouldn't have to. Yes. And the class that you taught to these homeschooling students was on the history and symbology of American comics. Yes. If I can get it, I'm going to try to find I know I have a very brief clip somewhere. Big names in comic books in the golden age were Jewish creators. If you, and if you want to talk symbology of Superman and others, so all of them cared about what was happening in Europe far more than the average American who was detached. Now, when we talk about literature, when you write something, you are writing a story to get, not, you want to tell a story, but there's always something behind the story. So that as a Christian, as you tell a story, the gospel is somewhere in there. If you, you know, care about social justice, that's somewhere underneath the stories that you tell. And for the Golden Age of Comics, these guys wanted to talk about justice for, Jewish, for the Jewish people who were being persecuted by Hitler over the seas. And the rest of America didn't really care yet because Pearl Harbor had happened. Because they didn't have families being dumped into camps. They had their families being rounded up. I remember that part of what you talked about was about how the authors of the comic books were speaking to issues that were important to them, mm -hmm. but sometimes it was more blatant, and sometimes it was just in the undertones, because if they were blatant about it, the audience would not have understood. Correct. But at the same time, it still influenced hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. So I'd like for you to take a minute to speak into... Why you think it's important for followers of Christ to produce and participate in areas that are not overtly labeled as Christian? Like, not that it's bad to be a Christian mm -hmm. music artist or, or whatever, but why is it also important for people to be involved in the talents and gifts that God has given them without confining it to that label? There are times when, so if you take music, for example, which I am not a great musician, of, I barely play the bass, um, you know, there is such a thing as like Christian, <laughs> contemporary Christian music, Christian hip hop music, Christian rap. And, and so um, as if as if the rap can be born again, when we put the, the labels on it, I think we're trying to say this is really safe for Christians. You won't hear bad stuff. It's approved. Yeah, it's approved. And, and so I get that idea. I think putting tags on you know, maturity level on movies and video game stuff is helpful. So, you know, what's included. But when it comes to Christian, Christianese stuff, it's almost like this is lesser quality, but it's Christian, so listen to it and buy it. Sometimes I think we use it as a cop-out to not do the best that we can do. And sometimes we think as Christians, if we write stories or music or art, like it has to be just always happy. We can't go through things that other people go through. 
because we're trying to perpetuate a joy of the Lord, yes, which we should possess, but we have misrepresented what that means. Absolutely, because the Bible says, I mean, you weep with those who weep, you mourn with those who mourn. And so that would indicate that there will be times of mourning and sadness or, or disappointment and grief that you don't lose the joy of the Lord in, but it remains. And so if you in your art are being honest, which is the rule number one of writing and probably any good art, is you have to tell the truth. People know when you're force-feeding lies, when you're trying to jam an agenda in. And so as a, as a Christian, I rarely read Christian fiction. I read a lot of Christian nonfiction, but I rarely read Christian fiction because I know the cookie-cutter storyline. I know what's going to happen. Now, I'll reread The Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia many times over. I'll reread Harry Potter. Now, you're like, that's not Christian. Well, there's a whole lot of themes in there that make me see things that I see in Christ. Uh, I see in the story that God is weaving around us. And so to tell the best story, you have to tell the truth about what's going on, about what's real. Struggle. Yeah, struggle. Sometimes as you're reading a story or you're looking at art in yourself, maybe you do have doubts. Maybe you do have struggle or you are going through a season of grief or of hurt or maybe you've been betrayed and the joy of the Lord remains. But the reality is we are trusting God with these emotions and with these feelings. And so as we create things, if everything is just squeaky clean Teletubbies with Jesus in it, it's not real and it has no lasting value. If you look at the bargain bins of bookstores, it's these type of books that someone just threw the cookie cutter template at it and said, here's what happens and oh, everything's happy in the end. Now, maybe I like a good happy ending, but I don't need to be guaranteed one. And as a Christian, it's hard to understand the realities of life, your emotions and your feelings, and to tell the truth about that, I'll being afraid that you'll be judged by other people in the church for not making it Christ-like enough or focused on God enough or they get married and live forever and ride off into the sunset forever. Like I'm writing a series of, of short stories that I've not finished. It's because I don't, I'm afraid to finish the last one. The trick of that is too, that you can't get to Jesus's work. You can't get to the redemption mm -hmm. if there was never something to redeem. Yeah. The greatest story ever told is the story of Christ. And it is one of someone living a perfect life and then dying. <laughs> a perfect life, but not a charmed perfect no, life. No, no. So I mean, like a how many times did they try to greeting. kill him? How many struggles did the disciples have? How many times was he rejected by people. And then he dies and is buried for three days. And all of his friends and all of his people don't know what, what's happened. They think it's over. They had a intense three days of heartbreak. I mean, he died on a Friday, rose on a Sunday, but what happened on Saturday? It's, it's simply waiting and not knowing. And it's hard as you go through this period of time. Most of our life is probably Saturday. Yeah, and this is not about creativity, but I say in student ministry, we're Saturday people because you pour your heart and life into a bunch of kids and you don't get to see the end result. They leave and you just don't know. You don't know what will become of it in the end. And so you just hope that the seeds are planted, that God will take those and grow them into something that is fruitful and, and glorifying to God. And so Saturday, in terms of that story, that's where we are. Even in this life, we don't know how it, how it goes. So while I want to give people hope with my fiction, sometimes it's hard. You know what the truth is, but you don't know how to say it. Or how it will be received. I, yeah. I think that's something that's tricky. And we can't paint this broad brush across all Christians in general. But I think 
in the realm in which you and I are presently. It's tricky because we might, you know, bash somebody or like a uh, mindset of theology that, you know, name it and claim it, blessed and highly favored, which, you know, there's issues with that. But then we want everyone in our circle to perpetuate that blessing still. And so it's, it's very difficult. We don't know what to do within ourselves when we realize that, okay, there, there is solid theology in exegesis and all that. I, I'm not saying that's not important. It very much is. But there is a danger in existing in echo chambers where mm-hmm. all you hear back to yourself is your own voice. Because what's going to happen is you hear your voice bouncing off the ceiling, the things that you said to be true, well-meaning, probably pulled from somewhere in scripture, but without checks of other things, that voice that's bouncing back off the ceiling all of a sudden, you're like, I heard a voice from above. And you presume that to be God's voice when it was your voice and your human ideals all mixed up and confused and not knowing how to come to terms with things. And so that's a struggle in our circle because we want people to give God the glory, mm-hmm. but don't suffer and don't give this false sense of blessing. You put people in a box of what they're allowed to feel and what they're allowed to experience. But like I said, we're not the author of our stories. The point I'm trying to make, it's hard for us to enjoy these things sometimes and feel like there's value in them because we have created sins out of things that aren't sins. Mm-hmm. Like we've created a raw, a sense of shame, I guess. And like if I experienced something that was hard, then what did I do to make that happen? And sometimes we do make stupid things. Sometimes things are our fault. But we forget that we're a part of a story and that there are ebbs and flows. And to say, oh, no, that's not a big deal. No, something happened and it was a really big deal. We would apply to people like you and me, fairly blessed, for lack of a better term, culture, where, you know, we're not starving on the street we aren't attacked for what we believe, really. We have a very poor theology of suffering. Mm. And so we don't know how to relate to people or, in fact, Jesus in his suffering because we won't let ourselves go there because we're afraid that's painting a bad image. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Keep up appearances in, in, in the Christian world. This is a really awkward segue because for our listeners, our thing like cut out on us and we don't know where we stopped. <laughs> So we're just jumping back in and we're going to take that as our cue to talk about The Lying Tree, which is Brett's young adult fiction novel, uh, which can be a little plug found on Amazon if you, you know, just want to be generous and leave good reviews there. That helps it be seen, just like all the things I say about the podcast. Hey, leave a review. It's not because we want to be patted on the back. In fact, it makes us feel really awkward and uncomfortable to say that. Super awkward. It's because... It helps it to be seen and therefore purchased. If people don't leave reviews, it isn't seen, and so it won't show up in searches as an option to buy. So, that is correct. Anyway, we're going to talk about The Lying Tree. Tell us a little about your journey toward writing the book and what inspired you and what God has taught you through it or whatever it is you want to say about it. This is your moment. Ooh. What God taught me through writing it. <laughs> it started with an idea. Which is weird, I know to say, because everyone thinks starts with an idea. I hadn't been writing fiction again, but there is a thing called NaNoWriMo, which maybe your a couple of your listeners are familiar with. I doubt it. It's National Novel Writing Month. NaNo National. Do they have like T-shirts with rhinos on it? Because that would be really uh, cool. yeah. Actually, they actually have some pretty fun little things. 
Uh, there's one year. There's a guy I follow on Twitter, and every year he posts a little tiny rhino. It's a nano rhino when it's time. So it's November. November is National Novel Writing Month, and there's this whole thing that you can do. And the idea is to get fifty thousand words written in a month, and it comes out to basically like uh, like fourteen hundred words a day. And it's very <laughs> it's very hard. Uh, so probably ten years ago, something like that. I it just kind of hit me that maybe probably less than that. I wanted to do this that I wanted to get back and actually write stories again. It was just something that I kind of was recapturing things and giving myself permission to like the things that I liked, uh, even though there may not be any intrinsic value in them to anyone other than me. It wasn't sinful, it wasn't bad, so I was like, you know what, I like writing stories, I'm just gonna do it for myself to tell the stories I wanted to tell. And so I started writing this one, I wrote I wrote one about uh, paintings that came to life <laughs> one year, and I don't think anyone's ever read that one either. Then the next year, I think we moved. So this is probably like seven years ago. And I had this idea about a tree, and I was out walking, and I saw this house that had these vines growing up it, and these bricks were kind of wobbly. And not, it, this idea just kind of collided with me. Boom. And I had a story. And so that November, I, I wrote it. I wrote 50,000 words and then did absolutely nothing <laughs> with it. Uh, wrote it, moved on, tried to write a couple other things, moved on, wrote some short stories. And then I just had this idea of, why don't I try to self-publish it? Which it was a big step because I don't think anything I do is probably good enough. Like there's always something wrong. Somewhere inside of me is also a buried perfectionist. And so if you don't start, you can't mess up, basically. I think we like to call that pride. Sure, if you want to. I prefer to call it a buried <laughs> it's pride. And so I struggled with it. Editing the thing is probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. Uh, I mean, you were in the house. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done. <laughs> you edited it. Our friend Anna edited it. I edited it. Grammarly edited it. <laughs> Brett's stories are wonderful. His grammar is not wonderful. And I'm a little bit picky about that. <laughs> So when I would edit it, I would have to have someone pre-edit it before it got to me because otherwise we might lose our marriage. <laughs> no, just kidding. We wouldn't really, but it was like, it was that stressful to me. So I, I, know, I know grammar is just in, in part of the toolbox that I, sh I should be better at, but basically there's really two camps of writers. There is the outliner who outlines everything, knows how everything's going. And then there's the discovery writer, which would be me, that I have an idea let's go. So I, I, I wrote it um, and we went through and, and the editing process is probably, like I said, one of the hardest things. And I think there's, there's probably something to learn in that, that the creation of something is good. The making it the best it can be is harder. I think that part is harder and more draining and more takes more effort than the initial act of the thing. And so, I mean, even if you take that and apply it to the Christian life, the hard part of the Christian life is the the daily bearing your cross. The initial coming to know Christ, while that journey may be long, it's fairly easy in that. But the scraping off the edges, the things that don't belong, taking away the things that don't belong is hard. It takes a long time. <laughs> it took so much time and effort, and I just wanted to just, ugh. By the end of it, I hated the book. <laughs> I hated every like I don't want to read this ever again. I don't want to see it again. And then every now and then I'll go back and read like, oh, you know what? That wasn't bad. That that wasn't bad. But in the process of it, it, it's just it's super hard. We have a phrase, you know, you have to kill your darlings, which is there will be things that you love that are great, 
that don't belong in the story and you have to kill it. You've got to hit the delete button and take it out. Even though you think that's the best line in the book, it doesn't fit the whole of it. And so you got to get rid of those things. Sometimes it's a character that you think is great, a scene you think is great, and it just bogs down the whole of it. It makes the whole of it not as good. And so you have to take the thing you love and give it up, give it away, tear it up, or use it some other place in a different story. And those are things you don't think about when you're telling stories. Like you just go, I'm going to tell this story and be great. Well, then you have to go in and then take out the things that don't belong. If you want to take that towards the Christian life, there's probably something you can learn from it. Absolutely. It's sanctification. Yep. Like that's the big word for it. it. The whole making ourselves not just better, but more alive, mm. more like Christ, pruning hurts. It's not comfortable. Creating things, it's not comfortable at all. It's not comfortable in our lives. Um, but the end result is healthy and beautiful. As opposed to this overgrown, something that, that is out of control. A fire is really good when it's in control. It gets out of control. It destroys. So tell us a little bit about what the story is about. The story is about a boy named Christopher uh, who is forced to live with his stepfather after his mother dies. And because his stepfather has been kind to him, he refuses to forgive him, which sounds wrong until you think about it. We often get most irritated with people who have been kind to us. And so Christopher and his stepfather move to Tennessee for a new start. One day he is visiting the caretaker's house of this property that they live and he sees a tree. A tree gets in his brain, and he thinks if he climbs it, he'll get what he wants. And he climbs this tree, gets teleported to a uh, another world, if you will, where he meets the Heartless Prince, who lives in this place called the Hollow. And the Prince makes him an offer that he will give Christopher what he wants most if Christopher will give him his heart. The story is about, is about that, and about Christopher trying to find his way home. He meets a character named the Warden, who is also looking for something. And so they go on a, a little journey together to escape from this prince and uh, get Christopher home. It's such a good story. And I, I'm i a person who I read more things that help me learn things more than I read fiction. But I'm actually rougher on my family than I am on strangers. So when I say it's a good story, you can believe that I'm not uh, perpetuating a bias here. Well, thank you. Something that I found is really fun is that you wrote this before the TV show Stranger Things yes, came out. I did. There are some characters or scenes or situations that seem like they were taken partially from that first season of Stranger Things. And I was sitting here reading. I was like, wait a minute. Were, were they? No, he couldn't have taken it from them because he wrote it first. Mm. So I did. It's yep. like, I mean, two people just had the same idea in some of, I mean, it's not the same story. It, like, you can't watch Stranger Things and know his book. It's not that at all. So, but there's just certain things that you'll be like, whoa. Yeah, there's a couple <laughs> things uncanny. in there. So if you like Stranger Things, you might really like those aspects of his book. Yeah, that that uh, that thing that you were referring to, um, I get a lot of comments, not even in relation to the Stranger Things connection or the similarity there. Uh but that scene, I get a lot of comments about it. Um, there are two scenes where I get a lot. That That's one of them. Also, I'm going to say, like, thank you for being so sweet, babe, about talking about it. So the reason I wrote it as a young adult book and not more of a grown-up book, which is weird. Young adults really, books really aren't just for young adults. I listen and read a lot of fiction that's young adult. You kind of know what you're going to get. 
So like in adult fiction, you might get more language and inappropriate things that I don't really want to read about. <laughs> but with young adult, that's typically not a problem. So, but this doesn't mean the stories are any less good or that the writers are any less skilled. It just means the content inside of it. Putting a PG Yeah, it's more of it. a PG, PG-13 type of thing. I've read 40-hour books. A 40-hour book, like, you know, you can get lost in it and all that, and that's great. But at the same time, I also like finishing a book every now and then. So I wrote it, so it's about 64,000 words. It would take you about five hours, five and a half hours of a normal person to read it. If you're a fast reader, you'd get done quicker than that. So that's what our daughter. Yeah, she'd probably read it in about three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She she finished it quickly and then she read it again. So that's a good sign that she wanted to read it again amidst all these other books that she loves because she's a big reader. So don't take my word for it. <laughs> take Juliana's behavior for it. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's it was it was fun. There are a couple scenes that I think, hey, you know what? That's not bad writing right there. Uh, so you know, that's 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 a lot for me to actually say about it. <laughs> yeah, we we have problems uh, acknowledging the good job that God did in us. I yes. Think. Well, Brett, mm -hmm. so I didn't tell you these because I think it's fun to not tell you some things sometimes and put you on the spot. It's not fun for me if I'm on the other end of it because it's like totally anxiety laden, but it's really fun for me to be the one uh, asking the questions. So tell me two of your favorite authors and why. Oh. One, a blatantly Christian genre and one fictional. A Christian genre or a Christian author? Ooh, see, that's a good question. Okay, you can do three if you need to do three to <laughs> cover all those bases. Uh, okay, so we're talking Christian writers or Christian fiction writers? Both. The The blatantly Christian one might not be fiction. It might just be Christian living or okay. theology okay. or whatever. Uh, so I'm going to put C.S. Lewis as a Christian fiction author. Now, he wrote a bunch of stuff that's not, but if you read The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, and if you haven't, you need to not do anything else in life until you do that. At least The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Read all of them. He also wrote a space trilogy, which people don't know. That Hideous Strength, Perlandia, um, Out of the Silent Planet, that's a space trilogy that he wrote. And some other uh, fiction people, and they're great. And so I'll put him as a Christian fiction author. Now, he wrote the other books. Because? Because there's no way you can read it and not see Christ in the fiction. There's no way you're going to read it and say and not get analogies like Aslan and the Stone Table. Just that alone. If you don't know Christ, you may read it and just blow past it. But a Christian, it will be so hard for you to miss some of these things. And it will just stir your soul up, I think. As a Christian nonfiction, that's probably harder. But my shelves are covered in theology books. I might say Francis Chan. Because I think I've, I've read... All of his books that he has written. I can't say that about anyone else, I don't think. I did not know that. Uh, Forgotten God, um, uh, a Crazy Love, stuff like that. Yeah, Because they're, they're also easy to read. They're, they're not super technical books. You don't have to be a theologian no, to you don't. read it and understand yes. the message in it. Yeah. Okay. I'm not going to be able just to name you the non-Christian or not specifically Christian fiction. Because I have a couple influences that I, I love. Ray Bradbury was uh, an American writer, wrote a lot of short stories, probably has influenced me in the short story, him and the other guy I'm about to say, uh, a lot. Um, he, if you read it, it's real nostalgic. And the one you might know was Something Wicked This Way Comes. He was the author of that. Uh, he wrote The Martian Chronicles, 
the Illustrated Man, a bunch of stories. And so he, he has a, a way of words that I think is beautiful. That's just simply beautiful. Um, and the other is a, is a more contemporary artist or author. Uh, his name is Neil Gaiman, who I think is just brilliant. And you can tell a Neil Gaiman book when you, when you, even if you didn't know he was the author, you could tell just by the way he phrases things. He wrote Neverwhere, The Ocean at the End of the Lane, Coraline, the book Coraline, or the movie okay. Coraline. Yeah, I've heard of that one. Uh, mm-hmm. That was him. Some of his stuff is borderlines on slightly inappropriate, depending on where you find them. I veer away from, from that stuff, but the, his short stories are just fantastic. He and Bradbury have a, an ability to just simply tell a story and you can tell they're telling it in the way that they want to tell it. They're not trying to be anyone else but themselves. They have a way to just weave, weave words just to transport you into a, a different place. I could give you about a 10 other. <laughs> no, our podcast is not that long. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you. You're welcome. I hope it's been that fun. was helpful. I'm, I'm glad that, that we had this date not together, but together. <laughs> it, it was good. Um, I, I, I enjoyed it. So where are we going to go on our next date? Uh, you wanted to see The Hate You Give, so sometime we'll go. Hopefully we'll see that shortly. Oh, yeah, I do want to see that. I read that last year. Mm-hmm. I do want to see that. And sure. I wanted to see it okay. too, so. There you go. There you go. You, you got some reading suggestions and a date night idea. Yeah. I'm full of great ideas. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Love you, babe. I love you too. Thanks for joining us today on Word Quota. This concludes our group date with Brett and Becca. Aren't you glad you got to join along? I thought it was fun. I hope you thought it was fun and valuable. I so much love all of his insight into seeing the whole world through the lens of story and the value of immeasurable things. Anyway, I loved having my husband on the show today. Check out his book on Amazon.com. Type in The Lying Tree by Brett McNew. The Brett McNew part might be important because of that whole algorithm situation. Just make sure you've got the right one. I'd love it if you'd buy it for yourself or a friend or anybody who might like young adult fiction novels. If you have read the book, please, best gift ever, leave positive reviews for it. I mean, unless you didn't like it, then, you know, just kidding. Thanks again. This is Beck McNew reminding you to fulfill your word quota well.